razors, a complete visual history of heavy metal mayhem by Alex Rosenberg and Christopher Crowbeton. This book is dedicated to the Birmingham sheet metal machine that ripped off two of Tony Iommi's fingers. Thanks for everything. Chapter 4 The Rash Metal What is it? Fast and tight punk-fueled dancing metal with misanthropic themes. Who listens to it? Excitable indoor kids who deal with their ADHD-driven awkwardness by getting fucked up and skateboarding. Where does it come from? The Bay Area, the outer boroughs of New York City, Germany, and South America. Bastard children, blackened thrash, neo-thrash, revival thrash, toxic thrash, power thrash, death thrash, technical thrash, aggro thrash, crossover, and witching metal. The Big Four. This is the original Big Four, Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, and Megadeth. Alright ladies and gentlemen, now we're getting into the woods. This is our first really heavy genre of the series so far, and I hope you enjoy it. Above all things, thrash saved metal from being lame. It made metal angry, and by doing so rescued the genre from complete and total geekdom forever. Sure, the technical talent and hedonism of the new wave of British heavy metal was fun and compelling, but it was also mid-paced, self-indulgent, and a bit too obsessed with Tolkienish tales of orcs and elves. Punk and hardcore, meanwhile, thrived on a very real sense of nihilism and bristling aggression and got people moving. Behind all of this was the Cold War paranoia of the 1980s, the many ongoing advancements of the day backlit with an understanding that sociopathic soci socialities might excuse and execute every living creature on earth with the push of a button. Metal had the rith, the rith and the myth. Punk brought the anger and speed. Society provided the nuclear holocaust. A terrifying beast was born. First and foremost, thrash is about the energy, says Rob Cavastani, lead guitarist for Bay Area Thrasher's Death Angel. For many, Death Angel are the embodiment of the thrash scene's longevity. The members were all of 15 when the band formed in 1982, and they've continued making solid, moshing music ever since. It's pissed off, but from where we're coming from, we let out angst and anger and frustration but in a positive way. It's a total release. You get shit out of your system in a way that's not just punching a hole in the wall. It's a unity of people letting it all out, but in a friendly way. It helped that thrash kids had something to rebel against. On the Sunset Strip, former jocks wearing mascara were topping the charts with sugar-coated anthems about getting laid which to most metalheads seemed like more of a fantasy than an apocalypse. 
In response, thrash kids rocked utilitarian biker clothing like tight jeans, patched up vests, sneakers, and t-shirts. Old school motorhead worship and a penchant for barbarians allowed for spiked leather and bullet belts. As thrash became self-aware, it went from underground noise for ugly people to the metal that mattered most. The forward-thinking politics and cultural paranoia behind the music made it more relevant and palatable than the gross sexual innuendos and endless rhyming of self with shelf that dominated mainstream 80s metal. And while glam got steadily softer in an attempt to remain commercially viable, thrash provided listeners with the solid riffs for which they came to metal in the first place. It also helps when a genre spawns the greatest metal band of all time. One doubts that Lars Ulrich and James Hetfield knew what was happening when the latter responded to the former's ad in The Recycler. Ulrich was a potential tennis pro who'd lived in Denmark until he was 16 and was clued in to European underground progenitors like Merciful Fate and Venom. Hetfield was the son of Christian scientists whose family's refusal to use medicine resulted in the death of his mother, Cynthia, when he was a teenager. Ulrich's friendship with Metal Blade, Metal Blade Records founder Brian Slagle resulted in his then-unknown band getting its song Hit the Lights onto the label's Metal Massacre compilation. In October of 1981, the boys were joined by guitar wizard and bitterness pioneer Dave Mustaine, and Metallica was formed. Though Metal Massacre announced the group to the world, Metallica was not yet complete. First, the others had to be joined by Cliff Burton, hippie punk bassist who could convince the guys to move to the San Francisco Bay Area. Secondly, they needed to replace Mustaine, whose drinking and drug use was out of control, even for Metallica, and given that, the band was nicknamed Alcoholica. Dave must have been some kind of dick while he was wasted, because he's already kind of a dick when he's not. The band was recording in New York, and Dave got the boot, and since his bandmates had no money, Mustaine was forced to take the bus all the way back to California. That very afternoon, they hired guitarist Kirk Hammett away from Exodus. This is the Metallica lineup that would take over the world and record the band's three greatest albums, 1983's Kill 'Em All, 1984's Ride the Lightning, and 1986's Master of Puppets. Though the first two didn't take off immediately, they built the band a loyal underground following. Master of Puppets, meanwhile, was a thrilling success, filled with the infectious rifts and gritty realism so many other metal bands lacked and now, thanks to Stranger Things, is getting a whole new life. The album took Metallica from a band of niche weirdos to gods of the genre. What set Metallica apart from its peers was, for lack of a better word, honesty. Like Motorheads before it, Metallica's music sounded as though it was wrenched out of a human heart rather than a Dungeon and Dragons monster manual. Hetfield and Hammett weaved agonizing guitar solos between unforgettable riffs, 
while Hetfield's vocals sounded like nothing more than a metalhead screaming. The few times the band branched into fantasy, it was for instrumental retellings of H.P. Lovecraft stories or the Passover story told from the point of view of the Angel of Death, the Call of Cthulhu and Creeping Death, respectively. Things were looking up for Metallica. Then on September 27, 1986, the band's tour bus hit a patch of black ice on a highway outside Dorup, Sweden. The bus crashed and Cliff died. Losing Burton changed Metallica irreparably. It quickly became clear that Cliff was the band's heart and his passing crushed his brothers in arms. He was swiftly replaced with Flotsam and Jetsam bass player Jason Newstead, whom Ulrich, Hammett, and Hetfield reportedly tormented in a never-ending hazing ritual that was really an outlet for their grief over losing a friend. The band made its most ambitious album to date and Justice for All in 1988. As part of his New Guy gauntlet, Newstead's bass was entirely mixed out. From this record came the song One, based on Dalton Trumbo's novel, Johnny Got His Gun, about a soldier who loses his arms, legs, vision, hearing, and ability to speak in a landmine explosion. The video for One, which includes footage from the film adaptation of Johnny Got His Gun, did heavy rotation on MTV, officially making the band public darlings. Metallica followed up Justice with its 1991 self-titled record, colloquially known as the Black Album, due to its jet black cover, which saw the group trading thrash for straightforward biker rock. The album was produced by Bob Rock, who was fresh off his work with Motley Crue and The Cult, though some fans saw the alliance as sleeping with the enemy. Many considered it an announcement to the world that Metallica would never again play anywhere smaller than a stadium or festival. The album's opener, Enter Sandman, was a gigantic single, its video also becoming an MTV staple. But the resulting financial windfall and emotional constipation over Burton made the dudes in Metallica the things they once hated. They cut their hair and appeared in crushed velvet and animal print. They spoke out loudly against the music-sharing platform Napster, disavowing their younger bootleg-encouraging selves. Worst of all, they wrote grunge-infected hard rock tunes with no solos in an attempt to stay relevant in the changing music scene. All of this culminated in 2003's St. Anger, a botched return to form featuring what sounds like Lars Ulrich playing a frying pan with another frying pan. Most fans consider St. Anger the worst metal album of all time, and it's hard to argue with them, although in my personal opinion, it did have its own highlights. Thankfully, this is not where Metallica's story ends. Soon after St. Anger's release, the band replaced Newstead with Robert Trujillo, bassist for Ozzy Osbourne's solo band and crossover thrasher's Suicidal Tendencies, whose energetic nature and continued dedication to underground metal seemed to reinvigorate the others. They dropped Some Kind of Monster, a documentary about St. Anger's creation, 
that shows Metallica dealing with alcoholism, loss, and Ulrich's disapproving Odin lookalike father. With new blood in their demos, somewhat demons somewhat exercised, Metallica bounced back, releasing two consecutive returns from 2008's Death Magnetic and 2016's Hardwire to Self-Destruct. Metal's greatest band will never regain its former glory, but at least its members have climbed shakily back to their feet. I'll show them. I'll show them all. As Metallica went from speedy opening act to arena headliner, thrash metal changed around them. Other major players were emerging, pushing the boundaries of speed and extremity in an attempt to compete with the shifting landscape of the sonic underworld. We were really young at the time, and getting mentored by guys like Metallica and Exodus, says Kevin Stanny. It was our vision of going to play football you're trying to throw people down, but in a fun way. It's primeval, but artistic at the same time. I mean, just like everyone else, there were some people in there who were negative about it. There was always some asshole at a football game ruining it for everyone else. Dave Mustaine had a long bus ride from New York back to California to think about getting even with his old bandmates in Metallica. Two months after his dismissal, the guitarist re-emerged with Megadeth, a band in which he wanted to play faster, louder, and heavier music than Metallica's. While many have argued about whether or not he achieved this goal, Mustaine's mastery of the guitar is an unquestionable fact, and Megadeth certainly surpassed his former band in terms of technical acrobatics, showcasing uncommon rhythms, and hard-to-wrangle riffs. Megadeth embodied a core thrash mindset of political disenfranchisement and cynicism. The band straddled reality and fantasy writing songs about possible but not to likely topics like Area 51 and being trapped in an insane asylum. Mustaine's varied guitar tone on classics like 1986's Peace Sales But Who's Buying and 1990's Rust in Peace has a mechanical quality that makes one think of artificial intelligence and video game mutants rather than, say, Lucifer's Legions of Death. The band's mascot, Vic Rattlehead, is a suit-clad skeleton that can hear, see, and speak no evil thanks to surgically applied steel plates. But though it has a loyal fan base that sees it as Thrash's greatest achievement, Megadeth has always been a fraught project Unsurprising, given that the band was formed almost entirely as a revenge tactic. Mustaine's continued drinking and drug use made him a volatile frontman who soon became as difficult to work with as he was musically gifted. The band's lineup was in a constant state of flux since its inception, with Mustaine the only stable member. Megadeth continued onward, succumbing to the great dole-down of the 1990s. Mustaine eventually sobered up, but revealed a controversial love of Christianity and conservative politics, taking time to question President Obama's birthplace in 2012 and announcing that African women with too many children should plug it up. As a result, critically acclaimed Megadeth albums like 2016 Dystopia 
are often received by liberal fans with a raised eyebrow, while Drek-like 2013 Super Collider gives naysayers ample ammunition with which to shit on Mustaine and his band. Stomp the Pain Away Given Thrash's love of street music like hardcore and hip-hop, it was inevitable that New York would get in on the game, which it did in the form of Anthrax from Queens. Formed by guitarist extraordinaire and KISS Army member Scott Ian and bassist Dan Lilker, Anthrax was completed by charismatic drummer Charlie Bonante, bassist Frank Bello, Bonante's nephew, strangely enough, who joined when Lilker quit the band, guitarist Dan Spitz, and vocalist Neil Turbin. The band's 1984 album, Fistful of Metal, is a genre classic, partly for its iconic cover art, which features a chain-wrapped fist smashing its way out of someone's mouth. But it was only after Turbin was replaced by the perpetually tanned Joey Belladonna that Anthrax shone, releasing monumental records like 1985's Spreading the Disease and 1987's Among the Living. A great song is a great song no matter where it was written, says Frank Bello. While some might hear Anthrax's music and think rabid catharsis, Bello is a font of positivity when discussing the genre. The Big Four was a celebration of us coming up together. It was more about tunnel vision and doing what's in your stomach. We're diehard music fans. We love Maiden and Priest. We grew up with that stuff. Our music is a tribute to that. We never stopped being fans of this music. I feel very fortunate to be in metal while it's stronger than ever. In the friend group of the big four, Anthrax is the chill dude who everyone feels like they can talk to. Belladonna's wailing vocals were reminiscent of the metal that thrash musicians grew up with, while Ian's wide-eyed stomping and shaved head connected with the hardcore kids and skate punks. MTV loved the shorts-clad skater metal dudes in the band and even sponsored a contest which the group destroyed the winners homed. The concept later became part of Married with Children in which the band made a cameo. Anthrax broke metal's perceived race barrier by touring with hardcore rap crew Public Enemy and collaborating with them on the rap metal progenitor Bring the Noise. All that, and it still made some of the best thrash of the 90s, with Armored Saints' John Bush replacing Belladonna and bringing a more grating vocal style to the band's sound on records like 1993's Sound of White Noise and 2003's We've Come For You All. These days, Belladonna is back in the band and singing some of Anthrax's most successful music to date, with 2016's For All Kings taking high slots on many critics' Album of the Year lists. It takes a never-say-die attitude, says Bello. Maybe it's a New York mentality. You can never take no for an answer. When we wanted to change thing, pe things, people said no. Even today, with these two recent records, people said, you can never come back, and we did. Don't listen to other people. Just make your own way. Anthrax pioneered a vital subset of the thrash movement, crossover thrash. 
Young headbangers might be surprised to learn that in the 80s, metal and hardcore were at odds. Punks saw metalheads as indulgent longhairs who sing about nerdy bullshit, and metalheads saw punks as dickhead loudmouths who couldn't play their instruments. But Anthrax's mix of moshalong riffs, metal yells, and good times made its shows the perfect place for metal and hardcore kids to bro down together. The movement soon spawned dozens of bands including Nuclear Assault featuring former Anthrax bassist Dan Loker, Suicidal Tendencies, Cryptic Slaughter, Cro-Mags, Biohazard, and Carnivore, Carnivore from Brooklyn whose towering frontman Peter Steele would make his biggest influence on metal crooning about dead women. See a crash course in goth metal on page 145. Hell yes. So you had Metallica, who were for everyone, Megadeth, who were for the societal know-it-alls, and Anthrax, who were for the fun-loving skaters. Then, you had Slayer. Even though their music sounds like someone holding a chainsaw having a seizure, Slayer is perhaps the most famous underground band in the world. Its mixture of Judas Priest's steel-plated war stories and Venom's tacked-to-the-wind Satanism won over all the scary fuck-ups of the world. While Metallica inspired the future generation of hard rock stars, Slayer single-handedly created death in black metal with its <clears throat> excuse me with its odes to serial murder blood-drenched battlefields and the devil in fact Slayer's very name is a widely accepted battle cry in the metal community why don't we try it now wherever you are throw back your head and repeat after me Slayer feels good right Congratulations, your guardian angel just threw up. Slayer's terrifying reputation is based almost entirely around the ferocity of its music. Unlike Motley Crue, Slayer does not have a book's worth of drugs use and burrito musk to be scary on its behalf. The band's history is kind of uneventful. High school valedictorian Kerry King and World War II obsessed punker Jeff Hanneman met when they were teenagers and joined up with a Chilean-American singer Tom Araya and a Cuban-American drummer monster Dave Lombardo. The band wrote multiple evil-ass albums until it was picked up by famed hip-hop producer Rick Rubin who helped them make the 30-minute thrash masterpiece Rain and Blood. The band's greatest tragedy was Hanneman's death from alcohol-related liver failure in 2013. So how did Slayer become Slayer in the eyes of the world? Maybe it was leaving Metal Blade to sign with Ruben's rap label Death Jam, showing the metal scene that the group was more militant than its poofy-haired counterparts. Maybe it was the band members dabbling in the Nazi subject matter and aesthetics. The S in the Slayer logo undoubtedly resembles that used by Hitler's Secret Service, and Rain and Blood's opening track, Angel of Death, describes in great detail the horrors perpetrated by Nazi scientist Joseph Mengele. At the end of the day, however, what Slayer did better than anyone else was evil.
Metal had already sold its soul by the time Slayer came around. Black Sabbath had been seduced by evil on NIB. King Diamond recited Anton LaVey's satanic Bible and piercing falsetto. And Venom enjoyed banging zombie chicks in hell. But Slayer saw as a state of mind related to the cultural psyche. Songs like Chemical Warfare, Hell Awaits, Born of Fire, and The Punishing Earworm of Raining Blood took diabolism in bizarre subliminal directions more like the disjointed paintings of Hieronymus Bosch than any Bible story. In short, they were deadly serious about what they did and a specific type of kid who saw Beelzebub in the smile of every baby and blood bubbling up in every gutter, it was the music that finally made them feel whole. Of course, being only human, the members of Slayer eventually failed to live up to their reputations as murderous acolytes of Lucifer. They publicly admitted that their fascination with the occult was fascination alone, leaving them with only sex, murder, and battlefield mutilation to write about. And other back patches you might have seen. While Metallica and Slayer were the forward faces of the Bay Area scene, a slew of rabid bands were creating sonic beatdowns of their own. Exodus, from which Metallica once upon a time stole guitarist Kirk Hammett, as we've covered, became every thrasher's favorite second-tier band, the off-kilter enthusiasm of sadly deceased frontman Paul Bailoff adding a devil-may-care attitude to its music. Testament, meanwhile, focused on catcher songwriting and displayed Thrash's maturing chops on albums like 1988's The New Order and 1989's Practice What You Preach. Dark Angel rejected the new wave of British heavy metal worship of those that came before in favor of no frills, speed, and fury. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, Anthrax's more traditional heavy metal vibe was carried on by New Jersey's Overkill. But the United States wasn't having all the fun. In Canada, Anvil firmly straddled the line between classic power metal and speedy thrash, while Voivod transformed its brand of sloppy metal into wonky prog metal. Germany spawned three of thrash's most important bands, Creator, Destruction, and Sodom, who, fueled by icy European power metal and hard-edged German hardcore, wrote humorless riffs and warmongering lyrics that would heavily inspire black and death metal bands. In Switzerland, a young Tom Gabriel Fisher was releasing a series of creepy and unhinged EPs under the name Hellhammer. That band transformed into Celtic Frost, an obsidian juggernaut that took thrash to atmospheric and avant-garde extremes inspired by the art of fellow countryman and alien designer H.R. Geiger. Fisher, casually known as Tom G. Warrior, was a disciple of Venom, and he crafted a guitar tone that sounded like an axe blade made out of volcanic rock. Hellhammer's pitch-black sloppiness and Celtic Frost's grand scope combined to form what we think of as black metal. At the time of their formation, no one had, say, any idea what to do with them. Even further abroad in Brazil, Brothers Max and Igor Cavalera decided to make their own music in reverence of destruction and Hellhammer. 
their band, Sepultura, boiled thrash down to its key components. They released two stark albums that would define death metal, 1989's Beneath the Remains and 1991's Arise, and two that informed the primal kinetic energy of new metal, 1993's Chaos AD and 1996's Roots. While everyone likes to believe that all metal died during the 90s, thrash merely mutated. Since thrash was considered culturally valuable and somewhat intelligent, it couldn't be totally dismissed. Bands like Pantera adopted more groove and southern swing into their bikerish riffs, while violence guitarist Rob Flynn started the immensely popular act Machine Head. Strapping young lad, fronted by Steve Vai, guitarist, vocalist, and sonic gadabout Devin Townsend, merged shimmering industrial with clinical thrash riffs to create a tight but volatile sound. Strapping Young Lad's 1997 album, City, is about as perfect as they come, a seething cortex of electricity and anxiety. That said, by the year 2000, death metal had emerged as the fastest, most unlistenable metal around, and black metal's no-fun Satanism and legit criminal record made the dudes in Slayer look tamer than ever. But what this did was make thrash difficult to find and rewarding for those who sought it out. And no one loves buried treasure quite like a metalhead. The 2000s saw a new legion of thrash emerge, young bucks who just wanted to make the music their older brothers had introduced them to. Underground European acts like Carnal Forge and Witchery got the ball rolling, while bands like Richmond's Municipal Waste Portland's Toxic Holocaust and Northern Ireland's Gamma Bomb used killer riffs to reinvigorate old-school topics like beer, pizza, and radioactive zombies. Many metalheads became quickly exhausted by the thrash revival and the glut of questionable bands it spawned, but eventually warmed to darker, harder acts like Power Trip from Austin, Texas and Mask Creepsylvanian Crusher's Ghoul whose music was less about 80s pop culture references and more about finding your teeth after the show. These days, thrash is a nostalgic chapter in metal's history, a sweaty party that every headbanger wishes they could have attended. But these reminiscences often forget the point of thrash. It saved metal from the ridiculousness of itself. One more stupid, cliched description of a castle or wizard and metal would have been dead in the water. Thrash, with its fire and speed and pessimism, pulled metal out of its own ass and tossed it into the pit. Thrash to this day. Fighting to this day! To this day! To this day! Is still going strong. With badass modern torchbearers with bands such as Grave Ripper, Wraith, and Midnight. Thrash is not going anywhere anytime soon. And I'm glad, for one, personally, that I am here for it. For Thrash, your starter kit. Ready to get caught in a mosh? You will need one 32-ounce Jack and Coke in a super big gulp cup, a $1.28 worth of gooey fast food, one t-shirt, sleeveless, 
one pair of jeans, one denim jacket, sleeveless, six band patches to be sewn onto jeans, two pairs of sneakers white, three tattoos, nuclear, satanic, and a 1980s cartoon character, and high blood sugar. Your homework for thrash metal, testament into the pit from the new order in 1988, thrashers by death angel off the ultra violence 1987 strike of the beast by exodus off bonded by blood 1985 necrophiliac by slayer off hell awaits in 1983 i am the law by anthrax off of among the living 1987 master of puppets by metallica off of master of puppets 1986 Blood Money from Overkill off of Horrorscope, 1991. Flag of Hate by Creator off of Endless Pain, 1985. Invincible Force by Destruction off of Infernal Overkill, 1985. Inherited Hell by Nuclear Holocaust from Handle with Care from 1989. Holy Wars, The Punishment Due by Megadeth off of Rust in Peace, 1990. Merciless Death by Dark Angel, Darkness Descends, 1986, Asajj Bumped by Sodom off of Agent Orange, 1989, Mandatory Suicide by Slayer off of South of Heaven, 1988, Necromantical Screams by Celtic Frost from Tumega Therion, 1985, Ground Zero Brooklyn by Carnivore, off of Retaliation, by, in 1987. The Unknown Nose by Voivod, off of Nothing Face, 1989. Arise from Sepultura, off of Arise, 1991. Detox by Strapping Young Lad, off of City, 1997. Davidian by Machine Head off of Burn My Eyes, 1994. Wicked by Witchery, from Symphony for the Devil, 2001. Headbanger Face Rip by Municipal Waste, off of The Art of Partying, 2007. Nowhere to Run by Toxic Holocaust, from Conjurer in Command, 2011. Death Campaign by Ghoul, from Dungeon Bastards, off 2016. Executioner's Tax, Swing of the Axe, by Power Trip, from Nightmare Logic, 2017, and Enter Sandman, by Metallica, off the Black Album, 1991. Alright folks, that's going to complete Chapter 4 from Hellraisers on Thrash Metal. Hope you enjoyed hearing about one of the more extreme genres of metal. And I hope you'll rejoin me in the next edition of the Monster Reads Hellraisers when we cover yet another even more extreme genre of death metal and grindcore. Alright, for this edition of the bonus track, we're going to delve into a crash course in hardcore. Why hardcore? Well, we're talking about thrash. And from thrash, we got crossover thrash, which was a mix of thrash metal and hardcore, which led us to what we think of 
as modern day hardcore as it is today. So without further ado, let's dive into the subgenre that is hardcore. Hardcore punk, usually just called hardcore, is a form of heavy music that is a lot like punk, only more hardcore, thus the name. The genre's roots go back to the late 70s and early 80s. Conservatism was on the rise thanks to the election of world leaders like President Ronald Reagan and Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Concurrently, punk had lost its edge and become mainstream, co-opted by art's ever-present nemesis, the Suits. In response to this began a movement of young bands looking to step up punk's game and restore its street cred. Groups including Hermosa Beach's Black Flag, DC's Bad Brains, LA's Circle Jerks, and New York City's Agnostic Front, and England's Discharge strove to bring back the authentically and anti-corporate DIY work ethic punk had lost. Thus, like the Norwegian black metal movement a decade later, the hardcore scene took shit really seriously. For example, although there was a noticeably overlap in the metal and hardcore fanbase, hardcore dudes shaved their heads and having long hair at a hardcore show was once upon a time grounds for an ass whooping. In fact, hardcore shows were generally not a great place for anyone viewed as a poser. Hardcore is as ferocious musically as it is philosophically, taking punk to new levels of furious discord. Punk says you don't have to be a good singer because there's purity and sloppy vocals. Hardcore says you don't have to be a good singer because everything is going to be screened. The influence of classic rock and roll is still really apparent in punk. Hardcore is all about speed and aggression and may or may not have a hook. Other notable contributions hardcore made to heavy music include the DB, a relatively simple alteration between the kick and snare drums played at a breakneck speed, gang vocals or gang shouts, phrases shouted by multiple people at once, and moshing, a form of not dancing in which people run and push and crash, crash into each other. The section of venue floors dedicated to these activities are known as mosh pits, or simply pits, as in, the pit last night was insane, bruh. In the decades since the advent of the mosh, the form has birthed multiple variations, including the circle pit, in which fans run in one massive circle, as if to conjure a tornado of sweat and body odor, and so-called karate moshing, in which people nobody likes flails their limbs around like a child, imitating Bruce Lee, regardless of their proximity to other human beings. Hardcore has also spawned several stringent sub-movements, including a scene devoted to being straight-edge, meaning drug and alcohol-free, including bands like Minor Threat, Seven Seconds, Youth of Today, Judge, etc. Syracuse's environmentally conscientious straight-edge band Earth Crisis took things so far that its fans were known to lay out fellow concertgoers for smoking cigarettes, 
Meanwhile, Houston's DRI, which stands for Dirty Rotten Imbeciles, Raleigh, North Carolina's COC, or Corrosion of Conformity, and New York's SOD, Stormtroopers of Destruction, and other initial loving bands created the subgenre known as crossover thrash, or simply crossover. So named because, as we mentioned earlier, it melts hardcore and thrash music. Crossover thrash created a safe space for metal dudes to go see hardcore bands without fear of ending their night in the back of an ambulance. Consequently, Guns N' Roses and Slayer each made albums of hardcore covers, 1993's The Spaghetti Incident and 1996's Undisputed Attitude, respectively. While bands such as Refused from Sweden began to mix the two styles even more freely, this in turn helped to blur the lines between metal and hardcore, which led to the creation of hybrid genres such as grindcore and metalcore, which resulted in simply tagging the core suffix to basically any other word when attempting to christen a particular scene. See deathcore, fashioncore, sumeriancore, christiancore, gamecore, gorecore, etc. Although there is definitely still a pure hardcore movement today, the distinction between the various styles of extreme music dubbed core has never been murkier. Certain bands that utilize elements of both styles, such as Converge and the Dillinger Escape Plan, would probably object to us including them in the chapter on the new wave of American heavy metal slash metalcore rather than here. It's a nebulous line, and truth be told, there are scores of modern bands that do not fit simply into one genre or the other. For your extra credit on this crash course, listen to these songs. Rise Above by Black Flag off of Damaged, 1981. Banned in DC by Bad Brains off of self-titled Bad Brains from 1982. Last Caress by The Misfits off of Beware in 1980. Tear It Down by DRI off of Crossover from 1987, and New Noise by Refused off of The Shape of Punk to Come from 1998.